2: Hello, I'm Laura Landon for the New Books Network. The music you're listening to is from The Celtic Mass for the Sea, composed by Scott McMillan. In his recently revised and republished book, The Living Beach, author Silver Donald Cameron writes that the Celtic Mass for the Sea is rooted in the ancient Gaelic reverence for the mysterious sea as preserver, destroyer, and giver of life. Silver Donald Cameron's book, The Living Beach, also celebrates the sea, and especially its beaches. Cameron writes that the living beach is a unity of disunities, a frontier, a paradox, at once stable and volatile. For Cameron, the beach is more like a dance than a place. Silver Donald Cameron was born in Toronto, Canada in 1937, but he jokes that at the age of two, he fled to British Columbia, taking his parents with him. He grew up mainly in and around Vancouver and received his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of British Columbia in 1960. Two years later, he received his Master's degree in English at the University of California, Berkeley. After earning his PhD from the University of London in England, he became a university professor in Fredericton, New Brunswick on Canada's east coast. However, he abandoned the groves of academe in 1971 to become a freelance writer, journalist, playwright, and filmmaker based on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. He now divides his time between Cape Breton and Halifax, Nova Scotia. Silver Donald Cameron has published more than 15 books. Two of them, The Education of Everett Richardson and The Living Beach, have been voted among the 100 best books ever written in Atlantic Canada. In 1998, when it was first published, the Globe and Mail selected The Living Beach as one of the best 100 books of the year. An updated version of The Living Beach was published in 2014 by Red Deer Press. Silver Donald Cameron has been awarded both the Order of Canada and the Order of Nova Scotia. He has won many literary awards. He is also the host and executive producer of thegreeninterview.com, a website that features dozens of interviews with prominent environmental thinkers and writers, including India's Vandana Shiva and England's George Monbiot. In the interview you are about to hear, Silver Donald Cameron discusses The Living Beach with freelance journalist Bruce Wark.
1: Well, I'm here on the beach at Parsborough, Nova Scotia, on the shores of the Minas Basin with author Silver Donald Cameron. He wrote The Living Beach. Thanks for taking the time to talk about your book, Don. My pleasure, always. Well, uh, first let's set the scene. We're on the beach... When you look uh, the few miles across the Minus Basin, we can't see as much today as you normally can because it's a bit foggy. It's Sunday, August the 3rd,
0: 2014, but but tell me, what, what do you see, Don? Well, as it happens, my wife and I spent most of yesterday driving along the shoreline, and, and uh, it's spectacular. It's uh, You know you, you look across at the other part of mainland Nova Scotia, the great cliffs of Blomidon and Cape Split, and the uh, the north mountain of the Annapolis Valley, and the road along here dips up and down and weaves around and drops down, and you see things like uh, out at Cape Door, for example, I was noticing a little pocket beach. It's a, there's a cleft in the cliffs, and just this little band of beach that would be, I don't know, Maybe fifty feet wide or something like that, Uh, barely enough to pull a boat up on. But it's you know that little beach has been built up because of the tidal currents and things swirling around in that area. It's a very interesting shoreline.
1: Uh, Don, how would you describe this beach in comparison the one we're on right
0: now? Well, this is one of the widest beaches I think I've ever seen. It's low tide and uh, so we're standing down almost at the edge of the water and there's some it, it's, uh, it's a misty morning and so we're seeing these lovely twinkling uh, kind of like wavelets in among the stones and shells and so forth uh, right down at the, the edge of the beach uh, but it's behind us. The beach goes up uh, well, for, I don't know, 100 yards or something and, it, and the vertical rise has to be 35 or 40 feet. Of course, the tides here are the highest in the world. They go up almost to 50 feet, I think, or maybe even a little higher. Um, so where we're standing, we would be under, I suppose, 30 feet of water at high tide, you know. So the result is this huge, wide beach, um, and a the, the beach that goes a long way down to the runnels that are left when the tide goes out. It's almost low tide. Uh, so it's quite a spectacular beach. Not a sandy beach, mostly a, a pebble beach, cobble beach, um, but quite, quite
1: wonderful. You write in your book that, uh, in fact, the beach, as it really is, is not what we think of as the beach.
0: What, what do you mean by that? Well, that was kind of a revelation to me, too. I, 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 we tend to think of the beach as what the geologists call the berm, which is the sandy piece above that's generally above the high tide mark, you know, where we spread our blankets and so forth. But in fact, it begins wherever the, the genuinely land-based vegetation and, uh, and ecological features leave off, the edge of the farmer's field, the edge of the forest, wherever that is. And then it goes through usually a lagoon or a back a uh, uh, back patch that's, uh, that's also tidal, uh, salt marsh, something of that kind, and then down over the berm and then down the, the, uh, um, down the beach face and, and ultimately out to sea. And the, the kind of official or um, the usual sense of where the limit is out to sea is it goes out to the deepest water at which the waves can still move sediments, however fine. And that can be 50, 60, 100 feet. Uh, so the beach in, in many cases looks like to our eyes, as though it's a few yards wide. In fact, it may be six or seven miles wide, and that's not the way we normally think of a beach, but it's a whole system, and uh, it's all constantly in motion.
1: And the beach we're on right now is, is typical of what you describe. It does have a salt marsh or lagoon behind it. Or as part of it, I suppose yeah, that's right. The,
0: the, that is the back end of the beach, really. And uh, yes, you're right. This is absolutely, uh, you know, typical in that sense. It's spectacularly wide because of the extent of the tide. So as the tide goes out, it exposes a very large uh, foreshore. But, um, but yes, you're right. The salt marsh is the most fecund, uh, I think, environment that, on Earth. It uh, you know, breeds enormous varieties of life. It's tremendously productive. Um, then you get to the shore face, and there's not that much to life. And then you get to the intertidal zone. And that, in many beaches, is uh, which is actually where we're standing, and and in many beaches, that's an incredibly fecund place, too. There are all kinds of of, uh, plants and animals there, animals that look like plants, plants that look like animals, animals that come and go with the tide, animals that live there full time, just a huge array of life. Now, the title of your book, Don, is The Living Beach. Why do you use that title? Well, that's actually where the whole and the Be- Living Beach wasn't just the book. The Be- Living Beach was a huge project. It involved uh, magazine pieces, newspaper pieces. I did a, a television show that later became a home video. Um, the book, of course, um, we didn't. I didn't get to do the interactive CD. That's a form that came and went during the course of the the whole project. Um, and I didn't get to do the children's book. But I think I may yet get to do the children's book uh, on the subject. But it came out of one little conversation with a geologist named Bob Taylor at the Bedford Institute in Halifax. And Bob said, you know, when the beach is under attack by the sea and and by high waves and so forth, it builds a bar further offshore and forces the sea to break further out. And then when the storm is over, it it, uh, brings the sand back up to the beach face and uh, up to the berm again, and it builds up the dunes and so forth. And I said, you know, you talk as though the thing were alive, forcing the waves to break offshore and so on. And he said, well, I think of it that way. And I thought to myself, that is really an interesting concept
2: from the living beach chapter 1 every beach like every person retains its individual character yet is constantly changing changing itself in the wind sporting with every wave the waves we see at the beach fall into two broad categories constructive waves produce spilling breakers breakers that simply seem to crumble at their caps As they tumble forward, spilling breakers nudge sand up the beach face in a slowly dissolving froth called the swash. The water curls up the beach and sinks into the beach face, leaving some of its sand burden behind. Plunging breakers, however, are high-energy waves, which are usually associated with strong winds and storms. These are surfers' waves, glassy tubes of water that rear up high, curl forward and break straight downward, yielding a strong backwash and very little swash. Plunging breakers are destructive waves that pull sand and other sediments back down the beach and out under the water. Beyond the surf zone, the backwash loses its energy, the sand settles, and currents along the shore shape it into a bar. Like an Asian fighter, the beach is using the energy of the waves to defeat them. The migration of the sand is the beach's defense, lengthening and flattening the whole shore face, forcing the seas to break further offshore. When the winter storms are over, the spilling breakers patiently resume their work of carrying the sand back up the beach until the bar welds itself into the beach face, restoring the broad and sandy beach of summer.
0: And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, it is like a living thing. It does, it can be nourished, it can be starved. You know, if we bring sand to it, we nourish it, take it away, we starve it. It's constantly moving, it's constantly changing, it's adapting to stress and so forth. And I thought, you know, if it were alive, uh, if it's not alive, why isn't it alive? Because it does the things that living things do. Um, and then I, that, of course, led me to think, well, what is life? And that got me to James Lovelock and the whole idea of the Gaia hypothesis. And, uh, um, and Lovelock makes the interesting point that we actually don't know what life is. We talk about it, but we actually don't know what it is. If you look at a, a, at a living human body and at the point of death, all the systems are there. They're all functioning together. The whole symphony of, uh, you know, of, the, of physiology is at work. And then something happens, and all of that stops. And we say life has left the body. But we don't actually know what it is that left the body and uh, so I looked at the beach that way and I thought hmm this does really behave uh, just exactly like a living thing and having read the Gaia hypothesis I thought well if the world as a whole is a living thing then so is the beach the beach is obviously a piece of the living world and I guess I came to feel that that's really what it was
1: yes you say in your book that uh, when when you interviewed uh, Bob Taylor I think Bob Taylor, um, you thought that that was a very vivid metaphor, that the beach was alive because it's always repairing itself and defending itself and so on. Uh, But now, your book now reissued uh, in 2013-2014, you think that it's not a vivid metaphor so much as a truth,
0: I do. I think it's a kind of a buried truth, and, you, and you're right. I mean, it struck me initially as being a, a fantastically um, effective way of describing an extraordinarily complex phenomenon. And the beach is, is is the one place in the world where you can actually see geological change happening moment by moment. Every wave changes the geology of the beach. Every wave changes the configuration of the beach. Um, and so, from that perspective, it's really a, a fascinating place. But I also thought about this whole business of it uh, of it being alive and. Uh, and and really, I, I, I found myself puzzling about how, why you would say that it was not alive, you know? Um, wh- how is it different from things that definitely are alive? And that's what led me to that whole question, well, what is life? And of course, uh, you know, Lovelock himself talks about this at some, at some length. And yeah, ultimately, I came to think, well, if the planet is, in, in terms of the Gaia theory, a, a, total, a totality of life, then the beach as a part of the planet is also alive, just in the same way that your fingernail is alive, although it doesn't live independently of you. Yes, there, there's a,
1: quite a sentence in your book. I'm going to read it. Um, um, okay, here's here's the sentence. The beach is a quote, unity of disunities, a frontier, a paradox at once stable and volatile. It is more like a dance than a place. And That's what I finally came
0: to feel about it. That it was it was a constantly moving, constantly changing um, interplay of forces and. Uh, and in that respect, again, like a living thing. I mean, that the that, that living things we tend to think of ourselves as being stable. But, you know, every cell in your body is replaced every seven years. So what does it mean to say, Bruce, work... Circa 1980 and Bruce work today. It's a completely different uh, thing, and yet there's something continuous, you know, something steady about it. Something stable uh, that we, you know, we feel ourselves to be the same person. Um, and I think the, the beach is like that too. Is it that it's uh, it is constantly changing? You come out after a big storm and it's all cobbles. You come out after a long period of calm weather and it's all sand. Uh, sometimes it's wide. Sometimes it's shockingly uh, shockingly narrow. You know, depending on the circumstances, there are life forms that are here today and gone. Tomorrow, it's a, it's a constant, steady flux. It's and and the difference, I guess, between the beach and other geological and other features of life is how fast it changes. Um, But it's not as though the forest isn't changing in the same way. It's not as though the river isn't changing in the same way. It's not as though our whole world is constantly changing. And, uh, you know, hanging around with geologists gave me a real sense of that. It changed my whole sense of time. You know, you go into a mountain range and you see sediments tilted up into the sky. And that's the bottom of an ancient seafloor. You get a sense that this whole world is not a very stable place at all. It's just a question of how long you have to look to see the changes. And on the beach, you don't look very long at all.
2: You're listening to a conversation with Silver Donald Cameron about his newly reissued book, The Living Beach. He's talking to freelance journalist Bruce Wark.
1: Let's look a bit more closely here at the beach that we're standing on, on the Minas Basin here, near Parsborough, Nova Scotia. And as we look down in the... What's left of the water, the tides going out? What do we
0: see? What kind of things do we see? Um, Well, one thing I'm struck by is actually that you can see the water is still running. I mean, you can actually see the tide going out in front of your eyes as it trickles out between the stones and down among the barnacles and so forth. Uh, I'm not seeing a huge variety of life at this moment, but uh, I haven't looked very closely either. We're certainly seeing a lot of uh, of little snails, periwinkles, um, some barnacles, including some very big barnacles is an interesting crustacean because it's been described as a crustacean anchored by its head to a stone with its rear legs kicking food into its mouth. Um, so in, in, uh, at low tide, of course, they're closed over and they look very still. Um, at high tide, they open up and they have these little cilia-like legs that, that keep moving food into their mouths and, and through them. Um, I'm not seeing much in the way of clams or clamshells, which sort of surprises me, and I don't see mussels either. Um, but that may be just a function of where we are on this beach or where we are vertically. Maybe we should go a little further to where the sand sure. is. Sure see what we see there now here's a muddy section yeah, too yeah now this is the kind of place where you would expect to see clams and look, there's a clam hole over there um uh, so there's clams living down there and there's some little shells here clam shells isn't that interesting these shells didn't weren't there further up and here they are now um and there's some weeds down here there's a, there's some rock weeds with and some uh, rack i'm looking for some others let's let's see what we whoop. Now we are getting into these <laughs> yes. kind of muddy it's, stuff. it's
1: very muddy from the rocks to the mud here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's and, uh, it's hard when you're. I'm wearing a
0: a big pair of boots, but Don just has his uh, running <laughs> shoes on. Like a fool, he left his left the boots in the car. <laughs> But, but I'm seeing bigger shells here too and and I'm not seeing razor clams which I would sort of expect here and you can see the tracks here of something like a snail that's been working through working through the bottom here you see that little groove actually there's the snail and looking at yeah, looking yeah.
1: him yes there um, we're
0: seeing quite a bit of
1: life we'll see
0: this little guy here this is like a little tiny squid or a sand flea or something like that it's a um a long uh, antennae and uh, a tiny tail thing. like yeah. a lobster, and, and he looks like he's now he's foraging down into these little tiny holes, which I presume are where something like a tiny little clam uh, might be uh, hanging out. Um, actually, smaller than a good sized beach flea, um, and I'm not seeing those either, but they generally hang out in, in seaweeds. Um, yeah, what else have we got? We've got quite a little stream running over here. Yeah, um, still as the tide goes out. Just looking to see what else... See my feeling is if we went a little further out there, which I guess we aren't going to be able to do, uh, we would see another whole set of bands of life, different kinds of vegetation, for example, and, and, and probably different kinds of... Probably there are pools there that have small fish trapped in them, for example. Um, you know. So, yeah, all kinds of life going on here, although it doesn't look like it at first glance. You know? Lots of life in the Minas Basin, the Bay mm. of Fundy, too. Now mm-hmm. uh,
1: let, Let's think about... Uh, that's the front part of the beach, what would we
0: find if we went back to the salt marsh? Well, there we might find a whole range of different kind of crabs and clams. Uh, We'll find a range of different beach grasses, and, and the beach grasses will depend on the salinity. So further into the salt marsh, a different beach grass that is not as tolerant of salt, and further towards the beach, uh, further towards the sea, grasses that are more tolerant. uh, We'll find all kinds of snails climbing up along those grasses, um, the the whole range of of crabs, different kinds of crabs, uh, different kinds of fish, um, birds uh, feasting on all of this. It's just an incredibly uh, fertile place for life. Uh, as the beach, as if thinking of it as a system,
1: how would the salt marsh part work with the intertidal zone and then the the, the other parts of yeah,
0: the beach. Yeah, well, it, it kind of the, the salt marsh kind of produces a broth of life and, you know, like detritus, broken, broken uh, blades of grass and, and uh, you know, the leavings of various animals and so forth. And the tide takes that all out to sea. And, and so it, it, the salt marsh really feeds the near shore uh, waters and currents. And a lot of that will settle right where we're standing, you know, and, and, and feed clams and mussels and all kinds of, uh, of life here too
1: and dawn of course uh, of course when we talk about life on the beach there
0: you hear them the birds yes, yes. Yes, and the array of birds that uh, that hang out around the beach and feed at the beach is is astonishing, uh, and and often those are even on the in, in terms of the tides. I mean, you'll see sanderlings and sandpipers and little shorebirds like that that are running in and out of the surf, picking up little picking up things that are too small for us to see actually. And obviously, gulls and uh, you know various kinds of hawks. There are crows down here today, and and uh, it's uh, it's a paradise for birds really. In fact, I think I'm seeing a whole whack of them way out there, but I don't know what they are. Um, just just off to your left there. See, mm. see out here? It looks like there's a yeah. like a cluster of cormorants, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Herons, you know, herons will be yeah. will be around here. Um, and of course, back in the in the marsh, there's another whole set of birds, which are you know sort of semi uh, semi sea birds. But uh, um, oh, what have we got? Oh, that's a big that's a big gull. I'm looking at there. I almost thought it was a heron. And then the, there are birds that that uh, nest on the shore, but are out at sea. You know, uh, most of their lives, petrels, for example, nest in burrows on on mud banks. But actually, you're in their living out of the open out of the open sea, and you can hear them go in the night. Sometimes, as the night uh, gets dark, you hear the as the petrels go out there. And uh, if uh, one night I was uh, becalmed. Out off the coast of Cape Breton, and all night long I heard this these sounds the, of these birds. They're fabulous flyers, and you know, in and among in and around the rigging and so forth, just tearing around, catching uh, small insects and stuff like that. Um, I couldn't see them; I could just hear the, the beating of these wings, the drumming of these wings. Um, but that's what they do for a living, and they're incredibly good at it.
1: Don, we've been talking for quite a while here. Our, our... You're getting a bit dry. I've got some non-alcoholic <laughs> beer in the case back there. Shall we go and get some? I'd be very happy to do that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's uh, It's Molson beer. Good. good. We'll plug good. for a good Canadian brewery right. there. Right. Yeah, we'll just we'll just head up there. It's cool. we've we've gone quite away from the uh, from the bag.
0: We have. We have. This is great. This is great fun. <laughs>
1: Okay, Don, I've got a Molson XL. Oh, it is 0.5%. We're not going to get drunk on that. Here, here, take it, Don. Thank you. And, uh, and, yeah, we'll be able to talk some more. Okay.
0: They're fizzy. There's, I was going to say, there's the, there's the genuine sound of the beer opening. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> well, I'm here uh, on the beach at Parsboro, Nova Scotia, on the shores of the Minas Basin with uh, Don Cameron Silver Don Cameron whose book The Living Beach was first published in 1998 and uh, has been recently revised and reissued but uh, there's kind of a sad story associated with that
0: what is it Don Well, the sad story is it took years and years and years to do the research for the book. And and as I think I mentioned earlier, did all kinds of different um, um, sort of productions out of it. Uh, Did a two-part radio show for ideas and a Canadian Geographic uh, article and... um, a radio, uh, a television documentary, and which became a home video, and so on, and uh, and finally, after all of this preparation, did the book, It came out in 1998, and it got rave reviews. The Globe and Mail called it one of the hundred books of the year. It won the Evelyn Richardson Award here in Nova Scotia, and got you know fabulous comments from coast to coast. And, uh, and then it was published by Macmillan Canada, and Macmillan Canada was sold about uh, eight or ten months later to another company from the States that had very different interests, and they simply declared this book, and I think quite a few others, uh, out of print, uh, gone, finished, not available anymore. You can have the rights back, Mr. Cameron, have a nice life. Well, who wants to publish, who, what publisher wants to publish a book in 1999 that was published in 1998 by somebody else? I mean, it's, the book is effectively killed by that. And uh, so I felt it never really got a good, a a decent shot at uh, finding the audience that uh, would have been interested in it. But also, I felt so discouraged. I thought, you know, the stroke of a pen in a corporate headquarters in New York and 10 years of my life is erased. Um, And I found that so discouraging that I didn't write another book for a decade. And then one of the... uh, the the happy sequel to that is that the the book I did not write was the children's version of the Living Beach, and I'd been talking with a, an editor named Peter Carver at Red Deer Press about that. And so after a decade, um, Peter got in touch with me again. And he said, You know, I was going through my desk. I found the outline for that children's book on the Living Beach. Are you still interested in doing that? And I said, Sure, I am. And a little later, I got a, a call from Richard Dion, the publisher at Red Deer Press, who said, What about the adult book? Um, is that still available? And I said, Yes. He said, Would you like to republish that? Said, you bet I would, you know. So here we are finally after, uh, you know, ni- 2014, after a book published in 1998. And it's finally back in in print and I went through it and I revised it because of course there have been things changed um for example, you can't talk about tsunamis and not talk about the Indonesian Indonesian tsunami in 2004. And there's a remark in the book that says that uh, surfers regard waves of over 35 feet as unreadable, unrideable. They now do 100 feet. Uh, so, so there are things like that where we had I had to go back and sort of either you know make a footnote or change the text a little bit or whatever. What surprised me was, of course, that because I had been trying to find out. About this this huge system called the beach, and about geology, which has a very long time frame, I, it was surprising how little had to be changed. That that uh, you know the the way beaches behave has not changed since the uh, well since time began, I guess, and certainly not in the last fifteen years. So a, a great deal of it was just as fresh uh, today as it was uh, fifteen years ago.
1: So the, the happy news is that uh, the Living Beach can find a new audience
0: now. Yes, and seems to be doing that, which, is, uh, which pleases me enormously. And in Red Deer is, is, is a press that's known for children's books, but this is one where their children's book, uh, their proposed children's book, we haven't done that yet, but we will, um, has led to the reissue of the adult book. So I'm just thrilled.
1: Now, Don, um, we're on a section of the beach. There are no cottages up here because of the salt marsh, I suppose. But I see cottages over there a few hundred yards away. And uh, could you describe what's in front of them there?
0: Well, what was in front of them is a combination of sort of pilings and bulwarks and riprap and and uh, riprap being big stones, and that's this little armored section of the beach, and it tells you um, that the that those cottages are actually under attack over a period of time that the sea is is coming close to them, and they've had to build defenses to keep the sea back from undermining the cottages and taking them away. The defenses won't work forever, but they'll work for a while. Um, uh, and that's something that you see all down the coast, is, is that you know, we build up really close to the shore. We forget that sea level was rising even before global warming, but sea level has been rising for several hundred years. And what that means is that the highest waves of the biggest storms strike further into the land every year. And eventually, we'll, you know, and the beach just simply moves back. It's the margin of the, of the land just moves into, into the land, and the land gets you know, slightly smaller all the, way, all the time. Well, we try to arrest that. That by and, and uh, you'll see this preserving roads, for example, great big rock piles along the sides of roads, or pilings, or you know, some kind of uh, woven railway ties, and that kind of thing. And that's all. Um, it's all part of the long-term dance of the beach. It's not going to stay there, <laughs> you know, but it'll last for a while, and it'll probably last long enough for the people who put it there to get what they wanted out of it. In fact, you have a chapter in your book, The Living Beach, called The Armored Beach. Yes, yes. Yes, and, and, and where you see the the really tragic consequences of this is uh, um, is in places where, um, for example, down the east coast of the United States, there's a lot of this kind of thing, where in order to try and preserve the the location of the beach. Um, people erect this this armored stuff, and uh, and then that actually that actually kills the beach. The beach disappears in front of. And we don't know really why how seawalls have that effect, but a seawall will actually eliminate the beach over time. And I think one of the uh, uh, most striking passages, or one of the most striking experiences in all of this, was when I was in New Jersey, and I was standing on a seawall that's as wide as a roadway and 15 or 20 feet high. So it's so high that the sea cannot be seen from the waterfront houses on the other side of the street except maybe glimpsed from a second story window but you wouldn't see anything from down lower than that and it's a massive structure it's like a great big uh, uh, you know like a castle almost castle wall running down the coast for miles and miles and miles when you get up on top of it and you look out to sea,ward you don't see sand what you see is the wreckage of previous attempts to hold back the sea so you see twisted metal and you know pilings and lumps of concrete and all kinds of junk out there Um, that beach was eventually restored by bringing in trucks. Loads of sand, which to, to try and do again what Mother Nature used to do for free, um, and it disappeared in Hurricane uh, Sandy. In Hurricane, Sa- and I was thinking when I stood there, I thought this is a fantastic fortification, but it's going to go. I mean, you can see that all the other previous ones have already gone, and they've been forced to move back. Um, and, of course, that's exactly what happened with Hurricane Sandy. And my guess is that the that the waterfront houses are now what used to be the second or third row of houses back, and everything in front of that's been obliterated, you know? Yes, the armored beach yeah. and the futility of it, I guess, <laughs> in a way. Well, you know, it's it, you know the the, uh, the the contrast, in in a sense, among the experts is between the geologists and the engineers, and the engineers, in a curious way, are more realistic than, than almost anybody because they say, okay, the time horizon for this this uh, facility that we're creating here, or this wall, or whatever it may be, uh, is let us say fifty years. If it lasts for fifty years, it gives us what we needed for fifty years. At the end of that it's it 's uh, had its useful life, and if it disappears it 's no big deal. Um, the geologist tends to well i 'm not so much the geologist as the naturalist really wants to preserve the beach as a as a beach as a moving beach as an, as a, uh, an environment for life, uh, all of those kinds of things and uh, uh, and in a sense um, I, I guess the someone like me wants to see the beach live in its own terms and back up as it needs to back up and so forth. But the, the the engineer is building this stuff in front of it, which kind of prevents that at the same time. It's temporary too, and the engineer knows that. It's a fascinating sort of contrast. Right?
1: Yes, I, I did a beach tour one time with the uh, then curator of the Fundy Geological Museum here in Parsborough, and and he looks at the armor. Uh, and shakes his head and uh, it was Ken Adams and, and he just, he hates it. I guess he
0: represents the geologist's point of view. Yeah, the geologists are the naturalist, you know, and see, the, I guess the thing that the geologist and it, you know, uh, marine geologists, marine biologists, there's a whole range of scientists here who are really fascinated by the beach as a system and fascinated by various aspects of it and, and really um, view it with great reverence. They, that's not the way scientists talk about these things, but when you talk to them, you, you can hear that that's the way they they see it and the engineers are in a sense much more pragmatic they say well this is you know we're going to use this beach for a couple of generations and we'll fortify it in such a way that it'll last a couple of generations and after that there'll be another engineer and he'll have to figure out what to do next you know but it's and that's a very realistic uh, perspective but it but in the meantime you may have lost and maybe forever some of the stuff that was there species that were specific to that kind of beach little turtles that used to, to uh, grow there there's a tragic little chapter in the book um about uh, Sir Edmund Goss, the 19th century British literary figure, and his father was uh, um, a, a tremendous naturalist, a wonderful naturalist, and they used to specialize in looking at the tidal pools around the British coast. And they wrote about it so movingly that the, the public flocked to the coast, invaded the tidal pools, took the uh, specimens of what was there, uh, erected homes and so forth close to the beaches, and in the end, the very beauty of the description of things turned out to be a tremendous disservice to that part of the environment. They just disappeared as a result of having too much attention.
1: Don, how did you come to write the book, The Living Beach? It was published first in 1998 and has just been reissued. Um, How did you come to write it?
0: Well, I, the moment that Bob Taylor made that original remark about the beach defending itself against attack in and, and big storms, I thought to myself, this is a subject... I, I wasn't sure where it was going to go, but I thought this is a subject that I really want to pursue. And so I did what I often do, and that is I did a magazine piece about it. But it was obvious that it was much bigger than that. And then I came to realize that, that just my particular uh, tendency of mind, I guess, but um, that there were many, many different aspects of it that I wanted to talk about. So I wanted to talk about um, you know, mythology, a little bit. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the music the people have done on the beach, the history of our relationships with the beach, uh, the different kinds of beaches in different parts of the world. Um, you know, so. Uh, and I wanted to talk about the biology of the beach, what you know, what actually lives there, and, and uh, so I wound up looking at the beach in in, uh, in a kind of a multifaceted way, and um, and ultimately, you know, drawing for myself what are the lessons that uh, from the beach, and um, one of the lessons was that, um, and one of the big lessons. There's a geologist named Stanley Riggs thought the beach should have legal rights. So that the beach should have a, a right to live undisturbed and uh, that's, that people ought to be able to be appointed its guardians and to take action um, you know, when its interests are under attack in the same way that if it were a person you would, you would do that. And at the start, that seems like a really startling and surprising uh, kind of idea. But it led to a project I'm now working on which is called Green Rights, which is about our right to a healthy environment but also the environment's right um, to uh, thrive and succeed undisturbed. Um, um which is and that really grows out of the last chapter of this book and it comes from studies that I was doing 20 years ago yeah so there's a funny link from from the beach itself to the green rights project
1: yes and and although it may seem odd to us here in Canada or in the United States this idea of green rights you point out in your book that it's quite a well accepted a set of ideas uh, in all over the world.
0: Yeah, of the uh, 193 countries in the United Nations, 177 have some form of environmental rights in their legal system, either the right of the human, the human being to a healthy environment, which implies that the environment has to have the right to be healthy, too, um, but also the right of the environment itself to and of Mother Nature to live and thrive undisturbed. That's a more unusual one, um, but uh, Ecuador, for example, now has it in its constitution. Bolivia has a, a big important law about the the rights of nature and uh, it 's it's, it's in many many countries but you see part of this goes back to to the uh, to the idea of property you know if we own property, if we own parts of the earth, then we think we have kind of control and dominion over those things, and it's a kind of a silly idea. Um, you know, I look at the property that I was living in when I uh, wrote the book. It was a wonderful house in Cape Breton, and uh, but the house had been there long before me, and I've now moved out of it. It's now in the hands of other people. So what does it mean for me to say I own that that property? What does it mean to say I own that little bit of shoreline that the house was built on? You know, I don't own it. I just, uh, I'm, a, I'm a brief tenant, you know? And, uh, and, and but as long as we have the attitude that we own it, then we do all kinds of destructive things because we don't think we have, to, we don't think the beach itself, or the property itself, or the trees themselves, the forest, uh, have any rights on their own. And they should have. they you know, we're the we the short we're the short term inhabitants. So they're there for good. You, know? you have a chapter in your
1: book called the politics of the beach. Uh, wh- what do you get into there?
0: Well, it's very much... The, it pulls out of exactly that whole business of who owns the beach and who has, who has the rights to it. And one of the... And this is particularly a, a big deal in the States, not so much in Canada, but in the States. Um, and, and I've always been amused by the, by the fact that, uh, uh, that people in the States um, think of themselves as rugged individualists, but they're socialists in levels where Canadians wouldn't even dream of. For example... Um, you get federal flood insurance, which is really losing, a losing insurance proposition. The reason there is federal flood insurance is that no private insurance company would insure properties on the beach or on the floodplains of the riverbanks and so forth. But what that does is it means that when the inevitable comes and the big storm comes, Hurricane Sandy, but it happens all the time with smaller storms in all kinds of places and with floods in the in the rivers. Um, the property gets demolished or badly damaged. The flood insurance pays for the damage. Uh, the person rebuilds. It's a, a little bigger, a little. And then they, and, and the more invested they have in the property, the more they feel that the government should be protecting it for them, that it's a, an appropriate public work to protect. The private property. And it, it has some bizarre effects. There's a seawall in Hull, Massachusetts that I describe in the book, where they, the, the sea has been eroding the face of a hillside. And the Army Corps of Engineers, which is the biggest socialist construction company in the history of the world, the Army Corps of Engineers has come in and has fortified the whole face, the face of the, of the hill. It's all you know, blocks of stone, all carefully laid in place to protect it from the onslaught of the storms. Halfway up it, there's a ledge. You can't get at it. You'd have to scale this rock wall to get up to it, or you'd have to come down from the top to get to it. But here's this ledge, and I asked a geologist I was there with, and, and Peter Rosen, I said, Peter, what is what is that ledge up there? And he said, and he sort of grinned, and he said, that's a public walkway. But because this is a public works project, there has to be a public access, so there's a public walkway, even though nobody can conceivably get to it under any reasonable circumstances, yeah, that's very but, interesting. But you see, those people think they're entitled to have the government protect their private property, which is, it's, it's, like, it's like a rabbit on a railway track. If the train comes along, the train's going to squash the rabbit. It's absolutely predictable. If you build in that location, you're going to have these problems. And the government somehow should, should resolve that. And to me, this is just nuts. I mean, if you want to build there, okay, but you've got uh, to take the responsibility for it.
1: Now, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, your book deals with not just the geology and the biology of the beach, but also uh, cultural aspects, if we could put it that way, music, spirituality, and so on. And and you, uh, in fact, uh, talk about a friend of yours, Scott McMillan. And his Celtic Mass for the Sea. Um, what, what do you? What are you getting at there? What are you, What's the
0: story there? Is what I should ask. <laughs> well, I guess I mean apart from the fact that Scott's a wonderful musician and it's a fabulous piece, and and uh, and I was you know, glad to seize an opportunity to write about it. But but the the uh, the Mass is the Celtic Mass, as the title implies, is a religious work, ultimately not a narrowly Christian work, but a broadly religious work. And a lot of what it's built on are charms and. And, and uh, uh, omens and superstitions and you know basically um, approaches to the divine one way or another that come out of the Celtic tradition and are on the beach. So you've got the 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 uh, the women who would go down gathering seaweed and so forth and would put a little circle of stones around the baby as they left the baby on the beach to protect it from evil. Um, there are uh, you know poems and runes and and all kinds of incantations that come out of that too. Uh, there are there there are lines that are incredibly contemporary, for example Saint Columba in I think the 4th century saying he who tramples on the world tramples on himself. Man, that's exactly right and we've forgotten it for the last three or four hundred years. So there's a sense in which there's sort of ancient wisdom about how you react with the natural world that's encapsulated in these traditions that are focused on the beach. Scott's picked those up and his wife Jennifer who who wrote the libretto uh, and they've made this wonderful piece of music that is right on the money and it's a thousand years old in a sense. In fact, I'm on now the uh, host and executive producer of an online show called The Green Interview, and we did an interview with Scott and Jennifer about that that work, and uh, we were able to film uh, a performance of it on the Halifax waterfront. So that's all on thegreeninterview.com. dot com. You can go and see it any time.
1: Yes, that's your website. Uh, that uh, would you say? Would it be fair to say that your work on the Living Beach kind of got you? following that path of of doing green interviews and thinking
0: about ecology. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a, a clear line, certainly from some parts of the book, to straight to the green interview and on to the Green Rights Project. Um, and many other things I think were having, this, having a similar effect. I mean, we are living in a, re- a time of real crisis environmentally. And what interested me was the number of people who... Are doing really interesting things about that. Who are not just standing back and saying the catastrophe is upon us, but who are saying there's got to be a better way to do transportation, there's got to be a better way to produce electricity, there's got to be a better way uh, to orient our society so that we look at the things that are long term and not at the things that are short term. And as I kept running into people like this, you know, a guy like Orevig Fushan in Iceland, for example, who saw that the Atlantic salmon was uh, uh, under threat of extinction and decided he would solve that problem and did so by going around the North Atlantic Basin and buying up all the fishing licenses for salmon that, that he could, raising the money himself and going out and actually buying license by license, 85% done. Well, somebody like that, to me, is just an incredible hero and, uh, and an unbelievable story. And uh, so to be able to sit down with Ori for an hour and say, okay, what did you, what did you, do? What did you do here? How did you decide to do that? How did you carry it out um, you know, to me that's a story that just has to be told I, I've watched some of your
1: green interviews and listened to them as well and you did one with Vandana Shiva
0: Yes, a very early one with Vandana Shiva, and uh, in Bhutan, oddly enough, because we were both there for an educational conference about gross national happiness. And see, that's the kind of thing also. Gross national happiness as opposed to gross national product. Um, Gross national product is a strange measurement. It measures basically any activity that involves the transfer of money. Most of life doesn't involve the transfer of money, so what we're measuring here is something very, you know, uh, Uh, very particular that we seem to think is much more important than it really does. Vandana was there to talk about gross national happiness and to talk about traditional seed saving and to talk about traditional um, uh, understandings of the world and and basically the pillaging of uh, the Indian world that she loves so much by private enterprise and international corporations.
2: You're listening to a conversation with Silver Donald Cameron about his newly reissued book, The Living Beach. He's talking to freelance journalist Bruce Wark.
1: Well, I'm here on the beach at Parsboro, Nova Scotia, with Silver Donald Cameron. We're on the shores of the Minas Basin, looking across. We would, if it weren't so misty
0: this Sunday morning, at, at Clay, there's, Cape Blomidon. There it is. There's Cape Blomidon just coming out of the mist right now, looking like the great big forehead of the earth. <laughs> yeah,
1: Glooscap, the great uh, mythic uh, native Mi'kmaq, used to live there at one time, they say very good place to live too I'd say. (laughs) Very beautiful. Um, Don, your book The Living Beach uh, is not really an academic tome so much as it is a series of stories. You use those stories to tell the story of the beach. Um, Why do you do that?
0: Well, I think it, it, for me it 's just a fascinating fascinating phenomenon in so many ways, and I was interested in the science I was interested in the ways that the, that the scientists go about their work, you know what they learn from drilling cores and how they determine that they, the normal movement of the beach as sea, sea level rises is to retreat just to roll back into the land and If you look at a barrier island coast like the east coast of the United States. The configuration of the coast is always the same, but if you come to it 100 years from now, you'll find it maybe 100 feet further inland than it is now. But everything looks the same. The Arctic is the same. The bay shore is the same. It's all, uh, it's, it's all a system that just rolls back. So I was really interested in how people find those kinds of things out, but also interested in things like there's a whole world around seashells. Uh, there are collectors of seashells. The, it has its, uh, its heroes and its great figures, its Gretzky's, in a sense, and its Babe Ruth's, in the, sea, in the world of seashells. And I'm always interested in that kind of thing, you know, what, what motivates people to get so obsessed about something like that. Um, that story of Edmund Goss, the, of drawing the attention to the shore that actually ruined the shore in England, struck me as a, a real tragic story. Um, he was interested in a lot of the arts that had to do with the uh, with the shore. Um, I was interested in the characters. For example, there's one little chapter called Oceanographer. And it's the story of Willard Bascom, who was one of the first great oceanographers. Um, In oceanography, at, at his point, they were making it up as they went along. There was no established discipline for that. And oceanography is really a word that refers to a lot of different kinds of studies that people do that have the ocean in common, but not much else. Um, so, I uh, went down and met uh, Willard Bascom, <coughs> who astonished me by plucking a beautiful shell off his uh, library shelves and holding it up in front of me and starting to recite poetry, and then asked me what the poem was. And of course, I'm a former English professor, I should know, uh, but I had no clue, and it turns out that it was The Chambered Nautilus by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, and Bascom had written a whole anthology or put together a whole anthology of uh, stuff about the shores and so on and so forth so a very human, very human story, lots of human engagement with it. Um, fascinated in learning how people uh, the thought about this kind of thing, um, <clears throat> one of the great lines was from a a geologist, uh, whose name I'm I'm struggling to to remember, um, in Florida, who said that uh, geological processes are very slow, but they're very persistent, and they have all the time in the world. And you know, when somebody says something like that, and you really think about it, it changes the way you see the world. So for me, it was a kind of a joyous adventure, a joyous education. Uh, And it had many different facets. It's not just about science. It's about people, it's about animals, it's about uh, the way we live in the world. Ultimately, it's about about uh, about the natural world that we live in.
1: Thank you so much, Don, for giving me so much time and uh, talking about your book, The Living Beach. Thank you.
0: I've enjoyed every bit of it.
2: (laughs) From The Living Beach, Chapter 9. For me, the beach emerges as an eternal process with a perpetually mutable form, an ever-shifting boundary, an image at once of change and stability. It is a paradox, a union of opposites. It reveals that stability is an illusion, and that change is also an illusion. It thus brings us face to face with perhaps the greatest theme in literature, science, and philosophy, the nature of time and human dismay at our own meagre allotment of it. The span of a human lifetime is the flare of a match against endless darkness, but it is all the time we have. Nowhere in our normal experience is the great unity of things, even of stability and change, more available to our apprehension than it is at the beach. Ultimately, looking at the tumbling waves and the restless sands, we are looking into the nature of reality, ceaseless variety within an eternal process we may even perceive that each of us too is a process a part of the great process and that both reverence and joy should flavor our own brief dance upon the sands have been listening to Canadian author Silver Donald Cameron talking about his newly reissued book, The Living Beach, published by Red Deer Press. I'm Laura Landon. Hope to see you again soon on the New Books Network.